Um, it's really unusual. In fact, this is the only time I've ever done this to do a video for Sunday morning. But here's the problem. I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians 13 today, which is a chapter, as you've just heard it read, all about love. And in order for me to be here in person, um, I would have had to leave my eight-month-old pregnant wife in New York to drive 14 hours with my three kids by herself. And it just didn't seem like it was possible to do that and then come back and preach a sermon on love. So we're doing this by video because it's my job to love her right at this moment. And... Um, and there's a, such a thing called video. So, um, but I wanted to, to do this sermon because I wanted the continuity. Um, I wanted to preach all the sermons of this series. So, um, but before I get going on that, I want to say a couple things just about our church. One is, some of you know that we're, um, we're in the process of searching for an associate pastor of development, is what we're calling it. And it's, it's going to be, this is going to be a really important person on our staff. We're hoping this person's going to be here for a number of years. And it's a really important thing. And so we would really like every single one of you to pray for us, that the right candidate would, would, would apply, that we would have the discernment, that God would lead us to the right person, and um, that, that that person would be able to be just what this church needs um, for us to fulfill our, God, our calling together. Okay, so would you please pray? Um, we're actually quite a bit of ways along in the process. It's pretty encouraging. There are some great people who have applied. Um, but please keep that in prayer because this person is going to have a big impact on your life, even if you don't get to know them all that well. The second thing is, um, a lot of you probably didn't hear our announcement about the Hub yesterday, last uh, week. We're, we're launching this new um, software that allows us to connect with each other and to connect with opportunities to use our gifts a whole lot better. It's an environment that's online that allows us to connect with each other and to plan for action. And um, we're really excited about it um, on staff. But, but the most important thing for you is two things. How is this going to change your life? And is this really just going to be an opportunity for us to try to coerce you to do, do stuff? I know people are thinking that. And um, let me try to answer those two questions. Let me answer the cynical one first. Is this just really, is all this, this whole series and this, all this software, is all this about just getting people to sign up? And the answer is yes and no. We really believe spiritually that when we come to Jesus, when we invite the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we figure out what our spiritual gift is, and we know that we are here to radiate God's love through spiritual gifts as widely as possible, that what's going to happen is we are going to serve sacrificially all around us. And so are we hoping that this series and the organizational capabilities of the software is going to create more people serving? Absolutely. Um, but is that why we're doing it all? Is the whole idea to get more signups? And the answer is no. A lot of people are going to figure out their spiritual gifts, and they're going to use them outside the church. They're going to use them more at work. They're going to use them more in their families. Um, the hub is designed to connect your gifts with service opportunities so that you can go into this, this knowing that you want to serve, and you can find all the opportunities that fit your passions and that fit your gifts. It's not designed to be another way for us to connect with you but to be a way for you to connect directly with opportunities for service and directly with the people that you're in close Christian community with in our church. And so I know there's the temptation to feel cynical about it, but I don't think you need to. I think that you can see this as a tool that we can use as a community to grow together as one community and movement, um, seeking to use our gifts and to serve together, but not to see it as a way that's going to make your life more difficult or make you have to say no to somebody more often because they're trying to over-involve you. This is an opportunity for you to be involved to the exact extent you want to be and in the exact ways you're prepared to be. So I hope every single one of you has either already signed up or will sign up this week to be an active user on the Hub. 
Okay? All right. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians 13 and what God is saying to us in that. If you're new, we're doing this series all the way through 1 Corinthians, and especially this six weeks in 12 to 14. And this chapter obviously is on love. In fact, if you don't know anything about the Bible, this may be the only passage you might actually know because you went to a wedding or something. But let's start out this way. If you were going to think about your life, um, what is, what's your greatest ambition? If there's one thing that you could do that would mark your life, that would be what you're all about, that people would think about you when they think about that thing, what's your greatest ambition? I mean, a lot of times we haven't thought about that, but you know, it's funny when you go online, people say all kinds of silly things that they haven't talked about. It's like, it's like a, um, a cliches anonymous club, you know, it's like, well, you know, I want to be happy or, you know, a lot of people say, I want to write a book, right? That my ideas got out there for people. I want that to be my legacy or my, my greatest ambition. And then some people say, I want to follow my dream, which if you answer the question, what's your greatest ambition with, I want to follow my dream, you have a tautology problem and you need help, okay? That's just Captain Vague, here's your cape. I mean, we, but, we, but you should have, but the question then becomes, but what's, if, if you think you're a spiritual person, like these Corinthians thought they were spiritual. People come to church, often think they're spiritual. People in our culture, they think they're spiritual. What's your greatest spiritual ambition? Do you know what it is? I mean, what... What do, you, what do you greatly desire? Because the reason that's important is that at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 31, the verse says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. That is, be ambitious about it. Desire the greater gifts. Um, and what does that I mean? What's that going to mean for us? Now, you can look in the verses just before that. that talks about apostleship and prophecy and teaching and administration and all these different gifts. And you can say, well, that's what it means. And it really is. That is what it means. Seek those gifts. Seek the gifts that the Bible talks about that the Holy Spirit wants to give you. But the rest of the verse says something else. It says, if you look at it, it says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then it says this right after that. And now I will show you the most excellent way. What does that mean? Right? The idea is... He's just said, go and seek out, be ambitious for the greatest gifts. But I'm going to show you the most excellent way to be spiritually ambitious. Seeking the gifts of the Holy Spirit is a good spiritual ambition. You, if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, you should seek spiritual gifts. That is a good spiritual ambition. All of chapter 12, all of chapter 13, all of chapter 14, teach that truth. It is a good spiritual ambition, but there's a better one. There's a better spiritual ambition. There is a most excellent spiritual ambition. And it has nothing to do with the phenomenons of spirituality. It's love. Love is the greatest spiritual ambition. In fact, you could say it this way, that Christian, Christian spirituality is love. Christian spirituality is love. There's um, John Wesley, who's one of my, my favorite dead writers, once said... Christians think about their faith and that, in fact, we actually call what we do spiritually our faith. But Wesley said, if you think of Christianity as a house, the door is faith, but the inside of the house is love. The place where you actually live in Christian faith is faith-motivated love. And you could say, you know, Nick, isn't it irresponsible to say Christian spirituality is love? But here's the thing about that. That's exactly what the Apostle John does. Listen to what he says in 1 John 4, 15 and 16. He says, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. 
And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You see what he's saying? He says, whoever lives in love lives in God. That is, if you live a life of love, you are living a life in God that is connected to Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Now, why isn't that irresponsible? And here's why it's not irresponsible. Because in the Bible, love is not open to whatever definition we want to give it. Love has a very clear, very distinct definition. And it's only when people take the word love and redefine it in their own image does it become an excuse for selfishness and license and the misuse of freedom. And when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what they were struggling with. They were struggling with the fact that though they were called to love, what they had really done was lost themselves to pride. And when that happens, all of your spiritual knowledge, all of your spirituality, and all of your uses of freedom are driven by pride rather than love. And what it means is all of your spirituality becomes unspiritual. All of your freedom just becomes license. And all of your knowledge just becomes ignorant stupidity rather than real knowledge, real freedom, and real spirituality. And that's what he's getting at in this. In fact, if you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, all of the stuff that Paul says love is, these people were doing the opposite, right? I mean, if you go through the book, they're fighting over unity. They're fighting over leaders. They're suing each other and holding grudges. They're doing all kinds of stuff specifically against what Paul says love is here. And so before you go anywhere, the whole message of chapters 8 all the way through 14 is always pointed to this idea that love is the greatest spiritual ambition. It is the greatest ambition you can have for your life is to have a life of love. It's not some accomplishment to say, I'm going to accomplish this. What the Bible teaches each of us that all of our greatest accomplishment can be is to live a life of love. What that will look like will be different based on your gifts. But the ambition is that what is coming out of those gifts and what's coming out of our life and what's coming out of our character is love biblically defined. And by biblically defined, I mean defined by love incarnate, Jesus, crucified and risen for us. So I want to talk about three things, okay? Three things that we need to learn about love to really make it our great spiritual ambition. The first is, is that love authenticates true spirituality. One of the reasons why love is so important in relationship to spirituality is love is what authenticates real spirituality. If somebody says they're being spiritual, how do you evaluate that? How do you say, yeah, you know, they are being spiritual. I should be more like them, or they're not being spiritual. I should not be attracted to that. What should either attract you or repel you from spiritual, any kind of displayed spirituality? And what Paul says the answer is, is whether or not there is the presence of biblical love. It is love that authenticates true spirituality. Look at the first three verses again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm only resounding God or a clinging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames— and have not love, I gain nothing. Now think about that. What, you, it's hard to get more evocative than that. I mean, think about what would it be like if we were absolutely as spiritual as possible. All the phenomenon, all the actions, all the outward signs were as spiritual as you could possibly be. What would it look like, right? 
speaking some mystical language through a spiritual relationship, a language that we don't even know, a language that isn't even spoken by a human being, but is spoken only by angels. That'd be pretty spiritual, right? I mean, that would be cool. But Paul says, listen, if it's not motivated by love, it's just noise. It's just noise. Or think about like fathoming all mysteries. Like literally, you, you like sort of see into spiritual reality. It's truth. It's practices, it's beings, all the mysteries of heaven and how life interacts and what God is doing in salvation. All of that, you just see it and you know it. That would be pretty awesome. And what Paul says is, without love, that's nothing. It's nothing. Or, or if you have faith that you can move a mountain. Or, I mean, or spiritually, spirituality through deprivation. Like, you give away everything you have to the poor. Or... Or you give yourself up to martyrdom by being burned alive. And he says, if love isn't present, you gain nothing. Why? And you see, the answer, he's already been saying the negative all the way through this book. Now he's saying the positive. It's kind of funny that this is positive, but he is. The negative, has all, he's already talked about it. It's pride. They think about it. What would motivate those actions if it wasn't love? What would motivate you to move a mountain what, with faith? What would motivate you to give up your body to the flames? What would motivate you to give everything to the poor? It would, it would be pride. It would be, it would be your name being made great, you being thought spiritual, you being thought great, that you could fathom all these mysteries, and you had this amazing knowledge, and you are so spiritual, and you could speak in the tongues of angels, and aren't you connected to God, and aren't you, aren't you going to be this great martyr remembered forever because you gave your body to the flames? It's the, the whole thing is wrapped up in pride. The problem is, is that if it's wrapped up in pride, you'll move the wrong mountain with your faith. The tongue you'll speak won't help anybody. The, the mysteries that you fathom, you'll say in all the wrong ways to all the wrong people. You'll end up breaking them down. Your martyrdom is worth nothing because martyrdom is an act of love. And so one of the things that we've got to recognize is that love authenticates true spirituality. And anything that you think you're doing or think somebody else is doing that they claim is spiritual— we need to recognize that the thing that makes it authentic is not how they do it or how they talk about it, but whether or not it's clear that it's motivation, it's flowing out of love. Because think about this. Are there other spirits than the Holy Spirit? And Christians believe the answer is yes. There's demonic spirits, there's junk spirits, there's our spirits, there's God's spirit. There's more spiritual in the world than the Spirit of God. So how do you know that the spirit that's being expressed is the Holy Spirit? Well, there's one thing that always marks the work of the Holy Spirit. Love. And so if something is even really spiritual in in the ethereal sense, but it's not loving, it is not coming from the Holy Spirit, and Christians know immediately then, then it's not spiritual. Not how we mean spiritual, as from the Spirit of God. The second, so then you can ask, you might ask this question. Well, wait a second. If love authenticates true spirituality, what authenticates love? Right? And that's the second thing we need to know about love. And that is that love and truth authenticate each other in spirituality. That love and truth authenticate each other in spirituality. Love and truth confirm each other. And as they confirm each other, it produces what the Bible calls holiness or godliness. Here's what I mean by that. Truth... Um, authenticates love's validity. Truth authenticates love's validity. But love 
authenticates your believed truth's sincerity. So if you say, well, I'm going to do this and, and I, I'm, doing it for, I'm doing it for love's sake. Well, can you just say you're doing it for love's sake and therefore you're just right if you say that? So Christians say, well, love authenticates spirituality. So anything you slap the label love on now all of a sudden is true spirituality? Uh-uh, no. Because the truth in Scripture authenticates love. It proves whether or not what you and I call love is valid. But truth without love doesn't work because there is a test to truth's sincerity. You say you believe the truth, but do you believe the truth? You see, you only believe the truth if your affections and your will and your passions and your actions demonstrate it's at the center of your heart. That is, when truth defines what is lovely, you act in love in accord with what's lovely. That's how you know you believe it. If you don't act in accord with what you say is true, you don't find it lovely. You don't think it's good. You don't think it's beautiful because it doesn't do anything. And so therefore, the action of love proves whether or not what you say you believe is the truth, you believe with sincerity. Truth proves love's validity, but love proves your belief's sincerity. I mean, look at the verses four through seven. These verses do not tell you to love. They tell the truth about love. They tell you what love is, right? Look at what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, it makes explicit the relationship between truth and love. I mean, it explicitly says in the passage, not only the truth about love, but actually says love and truth are a happy couple. Love is like a wife that delights in her husband, truth. That there's this relationship between the two, and they're always together, and there's no problem between them. And there, there really is no tension, even, between love and truth. Love doesn't delight in evil. It delights in what is good, and it doesn't rejoice in what's false. It rejoices in the truth. And Paul is very clear that you and I understand that love authenticates spirituality, but truth validates love's validity while love proves truth's sincerity. And all that brings up again is the same contrast. What's the opposite of love? Well, being unloving, sure. But the opposite of love in this context is pride. I mean, think about it. What does, what does pride produce interpersonally? What do you, how do you act when you're proud? Well, one of the first things to go when you're proud is patience, isn't it? Why be patient with somebody who's beneath you? Or kindness. What's the, what kills kindness faster than anything else? Well, pride. Why? Because kindness is to respond in kindness to somebody else. That is, treating them the same as yourself. Seeing them as the same value as you, or seeing them as more important than you. Kindness is built on the assumption that somebody else is at least as important as you are. But what does pride say? It says, I'm more important than the other person. So it's one of the first things to go with pride. Kindness. You, you, it's, one of the, it's one of the dead giveaways of pride. Is impatience. Is unkindness. Is envy. What is envy? We talked about this last week. I mean, envy is believing that God has been too good to somebody else and not good enough to you. What is that? That's pride. Boasting is even, even more directly, or arrogance, or rudeness. What is rudeness? Rudeness is a kind of unkindness. 
It comes from believing you're more important than the other person. Volatile anger. Where does anger come from? Somebody's blocking my way. Nobody has the right to block my way. I, this, should, this should be easier. And anger jumps up. Or I'm be, I shouldn't be treated this way. I'm more important than this. That anger is coming from pride. Holding grudges. I have the right to hold this grudge because I'm important. I don't have to free. That's all from pride. The truth about love is, love is always humble and love is always sacrificial. And because of that, you can also say, love is always connected to Jesus. There is no one more humble, no one more sacrificial, no one more loving than Jesus. His love was totally valid, always connected to the truth, and totally sincere. He was always acting on the truth. He never believed a truth he wouldn't act on. One of the verses in Scripture I really liked in college, and still do, and verse 3 is a really good one to memorize if you're a verse memorizer, and that's a good thing, is in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5. Let me read it to you. Um, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by what? And this is love, right? Being like-minded, having unity, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, right? And what should we reject? Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each one of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And if you read the passage in Scripture, the next four or five verses are about Jesus' attitude. He says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Now let me tell you about Jesus' attitude. Now think about that passage. The whole thing sandwiches what we should be like with Jesus, right? It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His With the Spirit, right? The Spirit of love, the Holy Spirit. If any comfort that you're united with Him, and if you're, and if you get any comfort from that, any encouragement from that, think about what that should do to you. What happens when you look at and you believe in and you trust in the one who is love? who lives a totally valid love and demonstrates the sincerity of his love over and over again. And he pours out on us his spirit of love. What is that going to do, right? You can't, in that way, you can't argue somebody into being loving. Love is a response. It's something you give. Love is fundamentally gracious. It's offered. That's why it's always sacrificial and always humble. Now, one of the things that that brings up that I think is hard for people is what that means is if we're, if our loves are supposed to be centered around valid love, what that means is we're always supposed to be in love with what's lovely, which can be really confusing because most people respond to that. Wait, wait a second, Nick. We're not supposed to be in love with what's lovely. I mean, aren't we supposed to love the unlovely? I mean, didn't Jesus, by definition, love what was unlovely? I mean, shouldn't we love people who have wrecked their lives and, like, are making terrible decisions and are running from God and hate Him? I mean, isn't that the whole point of being transformed by the gospel? Yes, but not for the reason you obviously think. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that we're supposed to love demons? Right? Probably not, biblically speaking. Or do you think that we're supposed to love sin? 
like literally sins, like rape or murder or extortion, right? We're not supposed to love those things. So wait a second. It, I mean, the Bible says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So wait a second. So then why do we love people who are making a mess of things, who are running from God and who are rebels against him, right? It's not because—we're not supposed to love them because of their unloveliness. We love them in spite of their unloveliness. We love them because there's something in them. There's something that is part of who and what they are that is valuable. And that value is lovely beyond the things that would turn our eyes away from them. God sees in him, in, in everybody, he seeks to redeem. He sees in them something that is profoundly lovely. That is his image. He sees its value no matter how much it's been marred by sin. He sees that value in them. He sees something. And, and you, you recognize this by what God does with it. He does, it's like people who collect old cars. They don't just collect old cars in their rust and in their broken condition. They collect the car so they can restore it. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't reach out to people who are lost and rebels against him and have made messes of their lives so that he can just snuggle in with all that sin. He reaches out to reach them because they're, st- they're valuable. He sees something lovely in them, something more lovely than what's broken them. And he seeks to redeem that thing up and out and to, to wipe away and wash away and break away the sin and the brokenness and the evil that makes them unlovely. To bring out the thing that he thinks is lovely. Think about it this way. Think about the Christian doctrine of heaven. The Christian doctrine of heaven says that the image of God ultimately will be fully remade in every redeemed person. And all that is sin that was in them and on them will be broken away. That is, the most unlovely person that's ever existed on every level. If you saw them in their heavenly state, they would be so beautiful. They would radiate beauty and goodness and nobility and truth in a way so powerful that you would be tempted to worship them. And that is the end to which God has called everything he's redeemed. And he has called all of our love to be fixed on what is most beautiful. And what is most beautiful is his self-sacrificial redeeming love put on lost, broken sinners like us in such a way as he calls out what is still lovely in us that he has put in us in the process of him breaking away all that we should hate in ourselves as he gives us full redemption ultimately in heaven. Because love always is happily married to truth. And our love should always be on what is lovely. And when that happens, we will always love validly. And when it comes out of us, we'll love sincerely. There's one more point in this passage in verses 8 to 13, and that is that love, and this is true of both love and truth, but love is eternal. Now, in one sense, you might say, no, duh, right? Of course, love is eternal. And Christians all the time talk about what's eternal and what, is, and what isn't eternal, right? Like we'd say, you can't take it with you, right? Or Jesus said, store up in heaven what moths and moth and rust would destroy here, right? So my car isn't going to make it to heaven. My car may not make it in 2013, okay? Or, or my clothes or my health, right? All those things are going to—people say, oh, that's all going to burn. I mean, it's not going to last. It's not going to make it. But you see, there's a lot of other things that we sort of presume are going to make it that aren't going to make it. Like, for example— Why does it say in the last verse, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love? 
There's another John Wesley passage um, where he talks about this, and he says, you know, the interesting thing about faith and hope is even though they're absolutely essential to spiritual life now, they won't be in the future. Faith is going to end, and hope is going to end. Because, I mean, the Apostle John said, we have faith in what we can't see. What happens when we see Jesus? What's going to happen in that day? When the kingdom of God is fully and totally here, in, in the time, in the place of what we call heaven, in that existence in which all sin is taken away, and we can see things as they are, are we going to need faith? We're not going to need faith. Faith is going to be obsolete. As great a thing as faith is, it's going to be obsolete. Think about hope. Do you need hope after victory? You don't. Hope becomes obsolete and peace becomes what you experience. But, but though peace will last forever, it hasn't lasted forever. There's a lot of ways in which right now we don't have peace. There are only a few truly eternal attributes. The truth has always been true. God has always believed and known what was true. The truth is eternal. It has always existed. It exists now. It will always exist. But that's not just true about the philosophical truths that exist. It's, it's true about the one who is truth, who has existed in three persons, loving each other from eternity past, loving and redeeming people now and in his creation, and creating, creating a nation and a people and a world of love for eternity future. Love is one of the only things that has no beginning, never goes obsolete, will have no end, it is what we were meant to do now. It is what has always been meant to exist between any persons and is what we will be doing forever. And it may be hard to do now and it won't be hard to do then. Love is one of the only things that is eternal. And because of that, it is one of the greatest goods, one of the greatest beauties, one of the greatest truths that there could possibly be. And it is therefore worth being your absolute spiritual ambition. There's a couple things to say about this in relationship to spiritual gifts. One is that spiritual gifts are not going to last forever. The passage explicitly says that, right? He says, where their tongues are be stilled, where there's prophecies, they will pass away. That is, all the spiritual gifts that we're to seek so zealously with such ambition, they're just expressions. They're tools for love. And those tools, though they're really good now, and they're God's gracious gift to us now, they're going to go obsolete. Therefore, your eternal identity is not based in them. If you have the gift of prophecy now, if you have the gift of leadership now, if you have the gift of administration now, whatever gifts you have, those gifts are going to go obsolete. They are not your eternal identity. Love is. And they will pass away. But the other thing to recognize in this passage is they are not going to pass away until perfection comes, it says. Right? Verse 11. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped it. Verse 10. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And that's referring to the gifts, right? But what does the perfect mean there? See, some people said at one time that it was the Bible that when we had the Bible in our hands, that was the perfect, and therefore these gifts would pass away. And so we have the Bible now. And so these gifts have mostly passed away. And, you know, I can see some reasonability of that statement, and I don't want to humiliate people who believe in it. But almost no New Testament scholars think that's what Paul meant 
Because just read it. That's not what he means. He means when we see face to face, these will pass away. When you and I see Jesus face to face, these gifts will become obsolete. That's not the Bible, friends. That's heaven. That's the return of Jesus. That's the second coming. That is the beginning of the eternal reign of all peace. It's not now. And what that means is we should be zealous out of love for all the gifts until that day comes. So we need to recognize if we're really going to understand the gifts that our greatest spiritual ambition is not prophecy. Our greatest spiritual ambition is not administration or leadership or preaching or teaching. Our greatest spiritual ambition shouldn't be worship leading. Our greatest spiritual ambition is love. A love that is that authenticates true spirituality and invalidates false spirituality, even when it's impressive. Recognizing that love and truth authenticate each other, that we have to have a love that is valid and sincere. It's valid in relationship to the truth, and it's sincere because the truth is coming out of us. We have to recognize that truth and love are eternal, and our gifts aren't. And therefore, our commitment to love that truth and love are at the center of who we are and that that is what we want to radiate out. That is the, the heart and white hot center of how we're trying to be like Jesus. That that is worth all of our ambition. The question then, um, be, then, then becomes, okay, well then, how? Because I've tried to be loving and it's really hard. Or I'll pray and I'll ask God to make me more loving and I find myself trying to create the feeling of love and it doesn't work. Or I'll pray and I'll ask God to make me more loving and then five minutes, in five minutes I'm yelling at my spouse or at my kids or I'm angry at work or I'm, I'm doing all the things that love is patient, love and kind versus said I wouldn't do. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I already read the answer twice in the sermon. Do you remember when I read from Philippians? He connected giving up our selfish ambition and our vain conceit with the comfort and encouragement we receive from Jesus. Right? That's what he said. He said, if you have, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, what he's saying is, has your, has your trust in Jesus, has, has your relationship with God not done anything for you? Has it done anything in you? Has it, has it affected you at all? If it has, use that. That's where it comes from. Seeing it in Jesus and receiving it from Jesus is how this happens. And it was in that first verse I read from 1 John where he says, think about this. This is causal. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, step one, acknowledge and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. God lives in him and he in God. Meaning that when you believe in Jesus, when you put your trust in him, you put your faith in him, God comes to live inside you. There are direct spiritual resources. God in the person of the Holy Spirit comes to you to help you become like Jesus. When God dwells in you, you start thinking and feeling and acting according to God's passions and desires and thoughts. What he believes is good and true and beautiful. But also it says this. And so, once that happens, what do we do with our minds and our hearts? It says, so we rely on, we know and rely on the love God has for us. That is, he said, Apostle John is saying, he says, we look to Jesus, we, we trust in him as the Son of God. 
and we receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, and then we, we think about, we know, we, we roll over in our minds and we rely on with our full trust the love Jesus has for us. We, we, try to, we try to figure out how to receive that, how to really feel that Jesus has died for us to save us. As, and, and here's the thing that will help that. When you realize how beautiful a thing love is, how great and how eternal a thing love and truth married together are, that that was meant to be what you are, that you were meant to be an eternal beacon of truth in love radiating out in absolute purity. And it was your responsibility from the moment you came into existence to be that beacon. You will realize how far you and I are from that. How, how far you and I are from being a beacon of valid and sincere love, of absolute purity, of truth and love, coming out with no pride, with all humility, like Jesus, to everyone we come in contact with from now into eternity. When you realize that's what we were meant to be, and you know that as far as we have fallen from that, Jesus loves and died for you and that you can know and rely on that. What the Apostle John is saying is, it'll change you. It will change you. And you will be so different, but you can never coax yourself into love. You don't even force yourself into love. And you can, never, you can never use the motivations of fear and pride to get yourself to love. There's only one way for you to be unseated from the center of yourself to experience the self-forgetfulness that allows humility and love to come in. And that is when the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of Christ unseats you. When he is more beautiful than you, when he is more lovely than you, when he is more interesting than you, when he is better than you, when he is more true than you, and when you see that in the cross and you receive it for yourself and you know it and you rely on it, love breaks in and it breaks through. And when it happens to you and to you and to you and to you and to, you and to all of us, it becomes contagious because when you see it in somebody else, it's divinely attractive. You see it and you say, that person loves like Jesus loves. And, and, and your, your mind won't believe it until you see it and then you see it in somebody else and it becomes contagious. It'll change you. It'll change me. We'll be, and there's this, there's this groundswell effect where we begin to change each other and transform each other because, we, because Jesus is transforming us. And when love comes through, when we see its eternal beauty, when we, when we see truth and love validating each other and demonstrating sincerity, when we realize it's love and nothing else that can authenticate spirituality, and we, we see that only love can lead us to true spiritual knowledge, real spirituality, and the right use of freedom, only then will it become our true ambition. Only then will love become your greatest spiritual ambition and your greatest ambition of any kind. And only then will you know that you have to turn to Jesus either for the first time or for the thousandth time to know his love, to rely on it, to rest in it, and to be transformed by it. And then when we seek these spiritual gifts, and they come into place because the Holy Spirit gives us to them, that love will drive out of them with the power of a thousand water hoses into the world to bring life because it first brought life to us. Let's pray. God, please help us to so see Christ that love becomes our greatest spiritual ambition.
help us sing what we're singing.